The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Oppenheiser is produced by the University of Notre Dame Initiative for Global Development, also known as NDIGD, an integral part of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. NDIGD provides opportunities to students, faculty, and researchers at Notre Dame to enhance human dignity, equity, and well-being for the world's poorest and most vulnerable populations by addressing today's most compelling global issues. Learn more at ndigd.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today my guest is Admiral Tim Ziemer, the Acting Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID. From April 2017 to July 2018, Ziemer was appointed by President Trump to be the Senior Director for Global Health, Security, and Biodefense at the National Security Council. Ziemer is on his second appointment at USAID. In June 2006, Ziemer was nominated by President Bush to lead the President's Malaria Initiative. Admiral Ziemer was also previously the Executive Director of World Relief. Ziemer completed a 30-year career in the U.S. Navy as a naval aviator and commanded several squadrons, air wings, and naval stations. He also commanded the Mid-Atlantic Region, which is responsible for supporting the world's largest fleet concentration, which includes 110 ships, 275 aircraft, and over 105,000 personnel. During his service, he served as Deputy Director for Operations on the Joint Staff and was responsible for planning and response for crisis operations at the National Military Command Center. Admiral Ziemer, welcome to Notre Dame. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation to join you. So let me set the frame for the conversation by just asking a very general question that I think is kind of core to your current role and mission, I think, is how do you sort of see the current global health challenges and or threats that we as a nation and the world are facing here in the 21st century? I think we immediately default to what so many people are concerned about, read about, and respond to, and that is the potential of a major global pandemic that affects us here in the United States and our partners. Also, the spread of infectious disease, read HIV, malaria, TB, and other infectious diseases. But for me, the breakdown in security. If you look at Yemen, we've had a huge health outbreak in cholera because of the insecurity. If you look at what's going on in Venezuela, where there was a adequate world-class health system. It's totally been brought to its knees because of conflict and insecurity. And then in DRC, I live and breathe the current Ebola outbreak, and it's because of the insecurity in that part of the Republic of Congo that we're having to live and breathe a growing problem in the Ebola outbreak. Yeah, we could probably add polio in Syria to that equation as well, I think, as exactly. another situation we where... We could have brought that to an end, <laughs> if it hadn't been for some of the security and conflict challenges. Yeah, I think we were down to two countries and a handful of cases. Correct. So, I think it might be three now, again. <laughs> Let's hope we get there. So on, um, you take that sort of mix of different kinds of challenges, and obviously this large, uh, looming humanitarian issues in these various countries, I think, are really critical, and I want to come back to those. But how do you think we're responding? How well are we responding today to these particular challenges? If you kind of look at each of them in turn. Are we prepared? Are we making progress? Or should we be worried about the capacity of our global response? And I'm not just mentioning this in terms of the U.S. response, but just globally, how's the global system responding? 
Ray, I think we've got to compartmentalize this. I think overall we have learned so much over the last 15 to 20 years, and we built on those lessons learned. As we continue to keep global health security a national as well as a global priority, it's important that we focus in on specific countries, specific issues, and circumstances so that we can bring to bear all of the lessons learned, all of the new technologies, and to be flexible and tailor a response depending on what the outbreak is. And here in the United States, I think we are probably the world's largest response actor, I think if it's fair to say, you know, including our contributions to major multilateral institutions. But for those people who are maybe not familiar with what the U.S. actually does, what is our response capability and how do we try to engage? In other words, where would you say the U.S excels and makes sort of its most significant contributions? That's a great question, and I really appreciate the opportunity to expand on that. USAID, United States Agency for International Development, is working in 120 countries. Much of that effort on behalf of the American people is focused in on health. About 40 percent of our foreign assistance budget goes into global health. That's a pretty significant contribution on the global effort. Now, as we contribute not only dollars, it's important to understand that we bring to bear multiple tools to enhance, build, and respond. The work done here at Notre Dame in terms of research and new technologies, new communications, new science, feeds into a very robust network at NIH CDC, where it's actually operationalized, not only on the domestic, but in the international field. So the United States brings science, new technology. We are the largest funder of health programs globally, both through our UN and our international partners, as well as our private sector partners. We also bring technical leadership that has complemented WHO, our partners in Europe, but more importantly, the ministers of health and their programs and all of the countries we're working. And lastly is the leadership, the focus, the ability to take the science, the technology, look at the need and tailor it to a certain circumstance or an opportunity to build systems and capacity. So leadership, technology, and funding come together to give us a pretty significant role in the global health response. Yeah, and I know it's really impressive to see U.S. personnel, particularly, for example, in the Ebola crisis, CDC personnel on the ground as almost first responders in that particular case. I think that was a great example of exactly what you're talking about. If you're sitting where you're sitting and you're thinking a little bit about all the things you'd like to be doing and what the global health community should be doing, how are we doing in terms of matching the level of resourcing to the challenge on the ground? Are the resources commensurate with the challenge, as it were, today? I think the immediate response is no. There's always a need for more funding, both at the research side of things as well as the implementation, which includes planning, logistics, and building capacity at the point of destination. There will never be enough funding. If you just back up and look at what the U.S. government's contribution has been to the global growth and component here, it has been, as I mentioned, not only the largest contributor, but it's been fairly consistent underneath 
I've served in the last three administrations, so we have seen the budget cycle from 8 to 9 to 10 to 9 to 8. That is a fairly consistent, predictable budget target. I think the key is, as we look at the variation in the budget, and it exists and it will continue to exist over time, the most important thing is to look at what is it that we need to target with that money based on national interests, based on global security opportunities, and make sure we're making the best use of that funding. You mentioned earlier in your comments pandemics, and I think pandemics is something that probably the American public is most acutely aware of, and oftentimes the media can get the public excited about and fearful of the possibility of a pandemic effect arising here, even in the United States. What do you think we've learned from some of these experiences, particularly with Ebola and the avian flu crisis, about pandemics, how we manage them, how we respond globally and so forth, and our particular role? Yeah, we've learned so much, and the good news is we have applied many of those lessons to bring us to the point where we are today. There are still some problems. Coming off the uh, avian flu outbreak, there is a absolute necessity that as new viruses become apparent or manifest themselves, it's important that those are shared to the global community so that we can take that to NIH, to the science, the innovation, technology community to develop a anecdote to take care of that, but more importantly, to prepare us for the next outbreak. While there is a global agreement to do that, we've seen that not all countries have been forthcoming in stepping up to the plate and sharing the data that we need up front in order to get and minimize a potential outbreak. That's something that we have to continue to understand and work through our diplomatic sources. On the uh, Ebola side, we learned so many lessons in the West African outbreak. Unfortunately, in the current outbreak in Northeast DRC, many of those lessons haven't been able to be applied for other reasons. The community response is different, and the security in that area has been an impediment. In fact, it's one of the most insecure places on the globe today. So the combination of insecurity and community resistance has undermined all the lessons learned that we learned in West Africa. And the previous nine outbreaks of Ebola and DRC, which were successfully brought under control, we have not been able to apply because of human behavior, because of community resistance, and the reality of conflict and uh, security. Yeah, so that kind of externality really undermines what we might do in the science. Yes, sir. So in terms of actually implementing the lesson, just to follow up on that particular line of thinking, there were other things that we didn't do after some of the earlier outbreaks, like we didn't invest in perhaps getting a medical or a pharmaceutical solution. We started down that path, some companies did, and then it was dropped. Is, what's your sense of whether the science is actually happening on the Ebola front, and who's doing that? Yeah, I would offer to say that we are seeing some science and new interventions. The Merck vaccine, with Gavi's support, with contributions coming in, with WHO oversight, we are seeing an experimental vaccine that's being applied in this Ebola outbreak. We're close to 100,000 doses. I would suggest that without the use of this experimental vaccine, the caseload which just went over 1,209 this past week, would be a lot worse. So we have new sciences and new technologies. There are a couple other vaccines. The J&J &J vaccine is also being looked at for possible uh, 
use at the appropriate time. So we do have new technologies that are in development and are being studied, and there is a concerted effort to see how we can accelerate, change the strategies, change the production rate so that we can bring it to bear in the different outbreaks as appropriate. Yeah, some good news on that front. I think one of the other things the Ebola crisis revealed to the world was some challenges within how the World Health Organization was responding or didn't respond. I mean, there was some miscommunication, there was slow start in terms of their institutional response, and you ended up having NGOs and CDC going in as first responders. And some of that had to do with structure and funding and restricted funding within the system. And how has the global community responded to try to fix those issues? Because they're the big issues that, I mean, there's some of the challenges that are going to be always there when institutionally in dealing with these big pandemic issues. I think the lesson that we've all learned is no one can do it on their own. WHO's response and ability to provide technical norms and standards in West Africa was different than what they're doing now. We have learned a lot. WHO has been structured differently. There's different funding to enable the WHO to actually have an operational response to an epidemic outbreak. They, with the government of DRC, are in the lead as the principal responders. Currently today, WHO has over 700 WHO employees in the epicenter, Benitown, Butembo, Katwa, and they are responding. Here's the challenge. Most of these outbreaks go for four to five months, and then we wrap it up. This one now is in the third strategic plan, 3.0, that was projecting funding and manpower requirements through July. There's no way we're going to wrap this up by July, so we're going to go into 3.1. So funding, WHO's ability to sustain the manpower, the leadership through an extended long-term outbreak is something that we're watching carefully. So it's incumbent on all of us, the U.S., the U.K., the European Union, to come to bear not only with funding, but also to look at how we can engage with different partners. The U.S. government right now has engaged with over 17 partners that are part of this response in DRC today. So as we acknowledge that WHO has a significant role, they can't do it alone, as I said, and more importantly, we're going to have to come up with other partners and engagement entry points in order to help the government bring this thing to a close. Yeah. We don't talk much about HIV AIDS as much as we did in the past, and probably partly because ARVs have become much more affordable and governments have put in place programs to distribute them more affordably. And the United States implemented its PEPFAR program under President Bush, and it's been continued under President Obama and now President Trump. What could you tell us about the current global battle to control the spread and perhaps eliminate the HIV AIDS threat? Yeah, I think the vision of eliminating AIDS, I would defer to the experts in NIH and our other scientists, but I think the vision is worth pursuing. Certainly, if in fact the U.S. government through the last three administrations had not made PEPFAR and global HIV and on the domestic front a priority, the world would look differently today. I think it's important to note that when President Bush, who was focused in on Africa and economic development, realized that HIV was undermining education, economic development, and there was an imperative to do something about it, hence PEPFAR was launched, was a key critical 
component of U.S. engagement in global health. We rolled out resources. We amassed a industry that responded quite effectively with UNAIDS and all of our partners to respond. And as we look at what has transpired, it is a success story. Looking forward at several years later, when President Bush realized that malaria was undermining education and economic activity, he launched the President's Malaria Initiative. Again, a leadership decision which was supported by Congress and funded liberally by Congress to bring in those two infectious diseases as a commitment by the U.S. to wrap up and make progress in terms of saving lives, more importantly, stabilizing communities. Looking into the future, I'm optimistic this administration and this Congress continue to look at HIV, PEPFAR as a national priority. I think that will sustain itself through the budgets and the variations that we anticipate. That's good news. The other global health programs, TB, HIV, the global health security agenda, which is designed to build capacity in countries to address their own responses to epidemic outbreaks is moving forward. There's funding in this budget to sustain that program started by the last administration. I think is all good news in terms of signals of administration and congressional priorities for these programs. One of the things that grew out of a lot of that good work going all the way back to the Bush administration was the emergence of Gavi a global initiative to work on vaccine creation for initially HIV, but then broadened. What's your sense of Gavi's role and the added value it provides to the global community addressing some of these issues? Yeah, Gavi is a success story. And I think from my perspective, it represents a current perspective from private business, new technologies, working together differently than what we had experience in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. The old structures were not set up to keep pace with the changing environment that we see. Gavi is an example of bringing in the private sector, research, logistics, looking at country needs, looking at global funding leveraging to bring to bear certain vaccines and interventions to where they're needed. The vaccine that has been used in DRC in this latest outbreak has been provided by Merck, but more importantly, Gavi has been a critical partner working with WHO and DRC to deliver this experimental vaccine. In the same framework, we look at the Global Fund, which is a significant funding business mechanism on how to bring in multiple partners, funders, to address the HIV issue. I think the Global Fund and Gavi represent two different leadership and funding mechanisms to address real-world current problems that have actually stayed ahead and put pressure on the old system to make some reforms and agendas in order to respond to the current needs. And we really brought in a lot of the most critical stakeholders, I think, to actually be partners in all of this, which I think is probably the really big part of that success story in that in I think instance. that's the key. So. You've been a leader of the President's Malaria Initiative, you mentioned a minute ago, and how do you think we're doing in finding new ways to address the malaria challenge? There's been a lot of promotion of bed nets and a lot of kind of public education about malaria in many parts of the world, but it remains a real challenge because many parts of the world we still have mosquito vectors transmitting 
and uh, families unable to control that. So how do you see that challenge at this day and time? The good news in the President's Malaria Initiative is that 7 million people are alive today that would not have been alive had nothing happened. We've been through that cycle before in malaria eradication programs. This program participated and contributed to WHO and other programs to bring the morbidity mortality rates down. That has been a success. Looking to the future, we've got to sustain the effort. We all know that malaria shouldn't be endemic. It, we can do something about it with the current interventions. Thanks for the research coming from universities like Notre Dame and other universities and our labs, uh, CDC, we were able to develop interventions that were very, very effective. Looking forward to the resistance and medications and uh, insecticides, science is needed, new technologies is needed to try to close the gap. The good news is there's an awful lot of work going on through the public-private partnerships like MMV, as well as IVCC, Integrated Vector Control Consortium, which brings in science, universities, new technologies to develop new interventions that can address resistance and the spread of malaria as we move forward. So the Gates Foundation looms large over the global health sector. They've made very large investments in vaccines and public health promotion, family planning and nutrition. How would you evaluate the role and contribution the Gates Foundation has made as kind of a private philanthropic, I suppose you might say, partner and contributor to all of the public sector work that you've described in your remarks? Ray, I'm very, very grateful for the generosity of the Gates family and their commitment to global health and global development. The world would look differently today if uh, they hadn't stepped up to the plate in the way they have. So that's a, a very, very positive. Having worked very, very closely with Bill Gates and Melinda on global health, maternal health, but specifically in malaria. He's focused on malaria, wanting to see it eradicated and eliminated in his lifetime. That's a pretty good goal. I hope for his longevity. <laughs> He's a great man. But when you look at how the foundation has influenced global health and development at multiple levels, it's significant. I just mentioned Gavi. We mentioned MMV, medicines, malaria vaccines, and IVCC. If it hadn't been for the Gates Foundation, leadership, ingenuity, and funding, and bringing in other partners, those three programs would look differently or not exist. So I know the Gates Foundation is focused. They have certain outcomes and agendas. From our perspective, they have been a significant partner for global good, and I'm grateful that the foundation exists and is still committed. I want to turn now away from maybe the specifics of the global health area, which you obviously have an enormous amount of experience, and maybe to your current brief on humanitarian assistance, which is quite an enormous brief today, given what's going on in the world uh, in terms of humanitarian crises. It's really a challenging time for the global humanitarian community. We're dealing with major crises in Syria, in Yemen, places like the DRC continue to be conflict zones. Some folks would argue that the system of response currently is dramatically overstretched and dramatically underfunded to meet the current needs. And seeing where you are is, again, I think probably the major contributor to humanitarian assistance in the world, both through U.S. programs as well as through the multilateral system. How do you see this issue of sort of a stressed and under-resourced system trying to deal with these immense 
crises today, particularly the Yemen one right now where the numbers of chronically malnourished and afflicted people are quite extraordinary. Right. It's something I give an awful lot of thought to. Again, the U.S. government is the leader in international humanitarian disaster response. We responded last year to 65 natural disasters and complex disasters in 50 different countries. So that gives you a range or a scope of engagement. Today, we have up and running six response management teams. Think of many FEMAs and six disaster response teams up and running. You mentioned several, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Venezuela, Ebola, Sudan, and Mozambique. Of those, only one will be wrapping up. The rest will be fully engaged with no end in sight because human behavior and poor governance and conflict has generated the urgency and requirement to keep those response centers open and responding. When USAID was funded and shaped, it was to respond to natural disasters through their peace program and the Office of Disaster Response. We have done that, we continue to do that, but much of our work now is directed towards complex human emergencies, Yemen. Today we are working with our partners to provide food, sanitation, and basic health to just over two million people. If the port closes and access of humanitarian logistics moving in shifts or closes down, it then trips the famine indicators that could, with a high probability rate, put four million people at risk for falling into the famine zone. So we are stretched, we are engaged. Fortunately, Congress watches this, and we have been funded to this point to respond adequately. For me, it's a human resource component. I have teams up and running going 24-7, and as an operator, I'm keeping my eye on six different units. Funding at this point is flowing. We have strong support by Congress. I think it's important to understand, and in this administration's national security strategy, it says the United States will remain the leader in responding to natural disasters globally. That said, this administration expects other partners to step up to the plate to contribute as to a larger extent. So we're still in the game. We will be in the game, but we have to keep our eye on the ball. Now, last week we had an event here on Yemen with one of the BBC reporters here on campus, along with some folks from Oxfam who were actually operational on the ground. And one of the issues that they talked a lot about was the dramatic issues of just access. And you mentioned the port issue, the supply line challenges and so forth. And so does the U.S. government currently have operational people on the ground? And how are you kind of managing or seeing that whole question of access and supply? Because that seems to be so critical. It seems we're on kind of a knife's edge with regard to that in the Yemen case. Yeah. Due to security, we don't have people on the ground, USAID people or U.S. government people. They're working remotely. We are in close contact, daily contact with our UN and our international partners. So all of our money flowing to support the Yemen effort is through the international partners and their organizations. And then we're basically trying diplomatically to keep the Hodaida port open, basically, because that's kind of the priority. priority. That's a priority. That and then access to different parts of the country. 
Yeah. Now, a number of years ago, there was a UN-sponsored humanitarian summit in uh, Istanbul, and it focused on this issue of whether the system itself was actually overstretched and underfunded. And one of the interesting twists to the conversation was, should we be building more domestic capacity for humanitarian response, particularly first responder capability, I suppose you might say, to enhance our ability to deal with kind of a multi-front battle, as it were, where we can't be everywhere at once. And I'm kind of wondering how the USAID of today is actually embracing that, some of those ideas and thinking about in addition to being in 65 countries and having six major teams operating, there's other places where there's brush fires where you still have to keep your eye on the ball, as it were. How do we deal with that in this complex world we live in? I think that's the right question. The Istanbul Humanitarian Summit was a sea change in opportunity and thinking to bring all the global partners together to look at these issues. One of the deliverables was the grand bargain of which the United States is an active partner, and that is to look at what do we need to do collectively to improve coordination, transparency, accountability, build capacity, da-da-da-da. There were eight or nine streams of work, and you know from your experience when you bring in a global, some things work and some things get set aside as chaff. The good news is there are a few of these activities that are still working, and particularly transparency, collaboration, and leveraging. That's ongoing. This grand bargain agreement sunsets in 2020, and to be honest with you, the jury is still out whether or not the vision and the commitment a couple years ago is going to sustain itself to help us achieve what you just communicated. I think we're all focused in on prevention and country capacity is really the goals we need to strive for. It is a huge part of our effort. Every morning when I wake up, there's a map of the world where there is an earthquake, a volcano, a hurricane depicted. And in the notes, it's whether or not there's a potential expectation for us to have to respond. The last three mornings when there's been an earthquake in the Philippines or on the west coast of Latin America, the note said they have sufficient capacity to respond we don't expect to be called. That is a direct result of our investment. When the cyclone hit Mozambique, the initial responders came in from South Africa and they had benefited from previous U.S. government training on disaster response. So we're seeing manifestations of some of that capacity building and investment in improving response today. It's not enough. It's got to continue to be the focus. As we look towards this journey of self-reliance, we want all countries to be able to respond appropriately. And when they can't, then that's when we roll in with our other partners to assist them to alleviate the human suffering and to get them back on the road to recovery. I'm very fond of Mark Green's commentary that part of our mission is to work ourselves out of a job. In some ways, that kind of mindset help kind of enables you to think in those terms and think maybe a little bit smarter about responses. And one of the things that was debated that got bipartisan support in recent years was food aid reform where we're actually trying to get food through local purchase to people quicker in these emergency situations and not necessarily rely on exclusively on U.S. shipping 
Are there other areas where we can get smarter about how we're doing things on the ground operationally and it's a better spend of taxpayer money and, and also maybe builds capability? Are there some operational innovations that you're keen to see flourish? We have a whole unit both in the OCTA and the Food for Peace units that are looking at that every day. Let me just go back to this cash program that you referenced. In 2008, I believe it was, we invested $75 million in the cash program. We are currently looking at numbers close to over $700 million where the program has enabled us to do that. It is so good because it allows us to provide resources and let the families or the individuals determine what they need. It generates business locally, and you know the implications of that. So it does build capacity. So we have benefited from some of the earlier thinking and looking at that. Accountability, making sure that the cash goes to those who need it, governance, corruption, all keep us on our toes, and what we in the development world watch over every day in terms of making sure that every tax dollar gets to the beneficiary and provides as much impact as possible. Internally, under Mark Green's leadership, we are merging the Food for Peace program with the Office of Disaster Response. And so we will be able to take all the best practices of both of those offices, merge them into one, and become more efficient in budgeting, projecting, teaming, training. So it is a direct restructuring to bring to bear all the assets of both of those units into one. It'll become the probably most significant disaster response component to represent the U.S. government in the future. I think one of the very exciting things about your taking on this role is actually that you have this broad experience with the military, in government, in senior roles, running major initiatives with NGOs as well. And what is your um, sense of the humanitarian work and role of NGOs in this work going forward? How do you see their particular role, in the, particularly in this humanitarian domain? The role of the NGO is critical. We can't achieve our mission without the NGOs and the private sector partners. That has proven itself over and over and over. This administration, Mark Green, is very, very committed to bringing in the private sector. As you know, we get huge amounts of money appropriated from Congress. The guidelines on accountability and disbursement come with the burden of working with the U.S. government. We're looking at mechanisms on how we can reduce that load to enable more smaller NGOs and faith-based partners to become part of the partnership base. That's an ongoing priority. We're seeing progress in that. But having been in the faith-based NGO world and now in government again, we see the value, invite participation, and uh, realize that we can't build capacity and sustain the efforts without the engagement of the private sector and the NGOs. When we think about the private sector, I mean, they more and more are in the humanitarian sphere. I guess when you think about the private sector, you think of them as increasing their presence as frontline responders or as providers of critical inputs, or what's the vision you might have of a more dynamic sort of private sector engagement, I mean, more multifaceted private sector engagement? Yeah, I love that topic. In in a best of all worlds. Yeah, right. I love that topic. We had spent another couple podcasts on that issue alone. I think a lot of people misunderstand the role and the engagement 
of the private sector in the development space. We have many conferences and meetings and exchanges over that fact, and I can, based on my experience with the Malaria Initiative and at World Relief and now in the current capacity, we haven't cracked the code on effective engagement with the private sector, and I think that's because the paradigm is wrong. I think we need to shift the triangle. If, in fact, we're focusing in on a mission outcome in a country where the road to self-reliance is an objective, it is absolutely critical to get the government and the private sector read business to engage more effectively to develop economy, sustainability, et cetera. The role of the government, the role of USAID, should be to enable that activity rather than delete it to be supporting that. And I think that's one aspect. If, in fact, there are existing programs that are country-driven and have a strategy and identifiable investment components, then the private sector can determine whether or not they're going to engage, how, and what the significant contribution might be. Engaging with a development program from a private business perspective is different than economic development with a agriculture, livestock, business, or resource uh, company. And I think we sometimes confuse the two. So again, from a development program, and from my experience in PMI, we had wonderful partnerships with four or five major businesses. I won't name them now. But in order to be successful, we had to have a clear plan. We had to show gaps. They had to determine whether or not their business or their enterprise would engage or want to engage in a specific component. It allowed them to cost that out, measure the impact, and give them an exit plan so that they could go to the board and say, we're in for X for so long and we can give you the feedback. That's different than economic development in a place like northern Mozambique where there's mineral and gas and oil exploration. So finally, maybe, Tim, I wonder if we could maybe wrap up with some um, reflections from you and your leadership role. You're carrying a heavy burden here in terms of the scale of your portfolio and particularly these health and humanitarian dimensions. And I wonder, very simply, what keeps you awake at night and what are you optimistic about? And maybe more importantly, uh, what inspires you every day to be excited about the work you're doing and excited about your colleagues at AID and the programs that our nation is delivering around the world? What keeps me excited is the opportunity to serve. I grew up in Asia, son of uh, missionary parents that went to serve. They went to do church work, ended up in development work. To see the sacrifice, the passion, the dedication, and the impact of that work with their colleagues, particularly global health, medical, influenced my life. I had an opportunity to serve my country for 30 years. It's all about mission and service. Then I was privileged to run World Relief. I tell people I went from serving my country to serving the Lord for people, for the sake of individuals. And now I'm back in government. The mission, the commitment of the United States government on behalf of the American people to do significant work and investment and make a change to save lives, build country capacity, is work well worth doing. I feel privileged to be serving in that capacity. What keeps me awake at night 
is the impact of human behavior, as we talked about. Of the six darts that are up and running, five are direct result of insecurity and conflict and our inability to mitigate that. For me, it's a 24-7 hour job to look to make sure we stay on mission, to save lives, mitigate human suffering, and in some way bring stability so that people can take a deep breath, reorient, and get on with their lives. Getting on with their lives seems not to be trending in the right direction. That's what keeps me up at night. But it's a privilege to serve, and uh, I'm grateful. As long as my mind works and my bones work, I uh, feel privileged to be serving the country and representing the American people. So, Tim, we're delighted to have you here with us at the University of Notre Dame and look forward to hearing your remarks later today and learning more about your work and commitment and service over these many years. And I just want to thank you on behalf of our program for sharing this morning with us. Well, thanks for your questions this time. It's been a really a nice treat for me to be here on the campus of Notre Dame, and I look forward to coming back. Again, my guest today on Global Pathways podcast was Admiral Tim Zemer, the Acting Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID. He was at the University of Notre Dame for an event hosted by the Eck Institute for Global Health titled The Importance of U.S. Leadership in Global Health. Learn more about the event Global Health at globalhealthnd.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to NDIGD and other global institutes, centers, and programs. The Keough School connects students, researchers, and policymakers from different disciplines to address complex global challenges. Learn more at nd.edu slash globalaffairs.